0: Parenting brings with it a boatload of blessing, along with bucketfuls of heartache. Someone once wisely observed that when children are little, they're a handful, but when they're grown, they're a heartful. Someone else said, when they're little, they step on your toes, but when they're grown, they step on your heart. I think we all agree, especially if you're a parent, that little children will try and test your patience. And sadly, on occasion, adult children will break your heart. I think that's borne out in the verses that I want us to look at this morning. So if you have your Bible, I'd invite you to turn again to the book of Galatians chapter 4. Paul, as we've mentioned, is writing to his spiritual children that had come to faith from his first missionary journey who because of their behavior were not just testing the patience of Paul, they were also breaking his heart. Because sadly they had fallen under the influence of false teachers who had infiltrated the church there. And they were calling into question Paul as the messenger as well as the message that he gave. And so Paul, when he gets wind of what was happening there at the churches in Galatia, is forced to write a letter to defend himself from their attacks. And he writes this impassioned letter, defending not only himself, but also the message that he gave. And when you come to this section of the book, Paul has made a reasonable, rational, biblical, historical, logical case that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Amen. He's reminded the Galatians that by the Spirit of God's Son, they had learned to call him Father. But not just Father, they called him Abba Father. And yet they were now in imminent danger of going from sonship right back into slavery. There some people often do they were on the verge of squandering their spiritual heritage and selling their spiritual birthright as sons and daughters of God. And Paul, when he writes this letter, is not just alarmed. He's heartbroken. And he's asking the question, why? Why would anyone who had been adopted into God's family want to go back and work for the devil it made no sense which is why the Apostle Paul's tried everything in his power he's put forth every conceivable argument that he could think of to stop them he's reminded them of their own conversion by the gospel of Jesus Christ he's appealed to their experience with the Holy Spirit he's argued with them on the basis of biblical history and theology he's used examples from everyday life and now finally in the middle of chapter 4 He pleads with them on the basis of their personal relationship. And he pours out his soul to them in these verses. Fearful that all of his work, all of his labor, all of his efforts on their behalf were in vain. You know what I find here in these verses are the words of a man with a broken heart. He's full of sorrow. He says, says, I I fear in verse 11. He says, I fear for you that somehow I've wasted my efforts on you. I'm afraid that I've labored in vain. And he says in verse 12, I'm now pleading with you as brothers and sisters in Christ. He, He addresses them with the heart of a father, but also with the affection of a mother. Because as we're going to see in a moment in verse 19, he addresses them as, my dear children. And by the end of this section, he's almost at a loss as to what to say. He says, I I am at my wit's end. I'm unsure how to express my emotions. They're, They're so complex. He says, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, but I'm just flabbergasted I'm overwhelmed I'm perplexed beyond words see what happens when you come to these verses is Paul changes the whole tone of his letter he moves from uh, talking like a theologian and an historian and a teacher to that of a broken-hearted preacher you know, I mentioned a number of months ago when we started this study that unlike Paul's other 12 letters that begin with a personal word of encouragement to his readers, a personal word of thanksgiving, Paul in this book skips all of those amenities. And he goes right to the heart of the matter with fervor and passion. He argues against these false teachers. There's not one personal comment not one personal note up to this point in the letter because Paul's engaged in a battle for the heart and minds of those who are caught up in this error and Paul is now defending and trying to preserve the God-authored God-ordained gospel truth you know it's interesting that up to this point it's almost as if Paul's been detached he's almost writing kind of an impersonal letter He's preferred truth to friendship, fact to fellowship. He's concerned more with principle than he is with people. But when you come to verse 12 of chapter 4, all of that changes. What you find here, as I said, is an emotional, affectionate appeal of a father and a pastor to people that he had poured his heart into. His anger and his frustration seemingly have run their course. He's kept some in reserve and we'll see that in the future. But it's almost as if Paul steps out from the lofty doctrinal pulpit that was his to try to make a, a personal connection with these people. Paul, like a good father, knew how to balance rebuke with love. And he turns from Spanking them to embracing them. This is the gentle side of Paul, and it's it's a rare thing. In fact, this is so unique that I want you to just notice. Look at verse nineteen, just for a moment. We'll get to it in a moment in detail. But he says, "My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you." You see that little phrase, my little children? Friend, that is the only time in the 13 letters that Paul wrote that you find that phrase. This is the only time in Paul's writings where he uses that phrase. You say, well, Doug, I'm I'm familiar with that phrase. I've heard it time and time again, my little children. Yeah, you find it in John's letters, but you don't find it in Paul's. And Paul is just trying to connect with these people somehow. One commentator summed it up well when he wrote, we have been listening to Paul the apostle, Paul the theologian, Paul the defender of the faith, but now we are hearing Paul the man, Paul the pastor, Paul the passionate lover of souls. Now, what I want to do, you can see it in the outline that's provided for you, is I want to look at these verses under four basic headings. First of all, I want to notice Paul's appeal that's found in the beginning of verse 12. Then I want to notice his remembrance down through verse 16. Verses 17 and 18 give us Paul's warning. And then finally in verses 19 and 20, you find Paul's desire for them. Look at his appeal. It's found in verse 12. He says, I plead with you. Brothers and sisters, become like me, for I became like you. That word I plead is a strong, strong verb. It's filled with all kinds of emotion. And it's almost as if Paul is on his knees as a father and as a preacher begging them to listen. Notice that he calls them brothers. No doubt they were believers who, as I mentioned, sadly had been sucked into error. By the way, always remember that that can happen to Christians. We always have to be on our guard. The Christian life requires constant vigilance against error and heresy. And he says, I want you to become like me, become as I am. Now when he says that, he's not being arrogant, he's not being condescending, he's not putting himself up on a pedestal and saying, now I want you guys just to try to get up here to this same level of spiritual maturity that is mine. He's not looking down on them. What he means, I think, by that statement is that I'm free from the Mosaic law. I've experienced the liberating freedom of life in Christ and now I want that for you. If you're taking notes just jot down chapter 2 verse 19 where there Paul says through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. I've been crucified with Christ. He says I've been delivered from the the mosaic customs and rituals have been delivered from circumcision and ceremonies and rules and regulations. And now I want that for you. I want you to be free. Not from the law's morality. Not from the divine nature of the law. But from the mosaic formulas and all the add-ons that people gave to it. Paul says, I've been delivered from that. I I no longer have anything to do with that. I'm now living under grace in union with Christ. And what I could not do through the law because I was weak in the flesh, I can now do through Christ who is strong in me. He says, become like me. I want you to disconnect yourself from the teaching of these Judaizers. And then he says, he says, Because I became like you. Now what he's saying here is that when I came to minister to you, I refused to do anything that would be needlessly offensive. Paul elsewhere says, I became all things to all men so that I might win some to Christ. And Paul says, when I came to you as a former pious Jew, I came to you as a Gentile And I stepped into your culture and into your world. And I didn't bring all of that Jewish tradition and baggage with me. I had none of those constraints in my own life. Prior to becoming a Christian, Paul as a Jew observed it all. He lived under the law until his encounter with Jesus Christ. And he trusted Christ and Christ forgave him his sins. He granted him his righteousness and he was set free from the bondage of legalism. By the way, that's one of the reasons why I want to wait and hold off when when we get to chapter 5 so that everybody who's away on vacation can hear those messages. I think legalism is one of those most insidious things out there and we're going to hit it forcefully. And Paul says, I, I've been delivered from all of that legalism. I, I formerly was a very, very pious Jew. I was raised in an Orthodox Jewish home by parents who dreamed that someday I would become a rabbi. But as he says in Philippians 4-3, rather, he says all of that is now rubbish. I gave up all that self-righteous behavior for the true righteousness that is in Christ Jesus. I've abandoned the tradition of my Father, and I'm no longer living under the law. Now, what I want you to do is follow my example. Don't, please, I'm pleading with you. Don't go back into what I've been delivered from. Now, that's his plea. Notice his remembrance. He says at the end of verse 12, he says, you did me no wrong. I want you to think back now. Remember this. You didn't do me any wrong. Verse 13, as you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. And even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God as if I were Christ Jesus himself, where where then is your blessing of me now? I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. He says, have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? You know, when you read Acts chapter 13 and 14, where you have the record of Paul's visit to Galatia, you find that the only people who opposed him were the Jews the Gentiles in Galatia who made up the majority of this church heard the gospel and they believed and they received his message with joy and with with thanksgiving and he's saying here "When, when I came to you you embraced me you accepted me you sacrificed yourself for me and now what's happened you're causing me grief and heartache he says you're killing me Why are you doing this? You know, if you've ever had someone love you and then betray you, you know the hurt that Paul is feeling right now. A couple of things worth noting. Notice that it says that he came because of an illness. Evidently, going to Galatia was not part of his original plan, it wasn't on his radar. But God in his providence allowed him to get ill, to get sick, and it forced him to go there. What exactly that illness was, we, we can't say for certain. A lot of speculation. Some have suggested that it was epilepsy. Some have suggested that Paul contracted malaria in the lowlands along the Mediterranean Sea and was forced to go to the higher elevations to escape that, that epidemic that was there. We can't say for certain, but Paul says, I was sick. And because of my illness, I came to you. And while there, even though I didn't have all the strength and all the power to minister to you, you still welcomed me. I was forced to stay there. I couldn't leave. Interesting, if it was malaria, it may have impacted his appearance. It also would have... Impacted his eyesight. But here's the lesson. And it's one we all need to learn. God uses our human problems to achieve his divine purposes. That's a tough lesson to learn. Nobody enjoys getting sick. No doubt Paul pleaded with God in prayer to heal him. But God uses our weaknesses to make us dependent upon him and in the case of Paul he used it to allow him to reach the Galatians with the gospel of God's grace can I give you the application of this there's no profit in complaining I know some of you are going through hard times I really really do And some of you right now are thinking, Doug, it's very easy for you to say those things. You don't know the illness that I have. You don't know my heartache, and that's true. But I do know that there's no benefit in complaining. And far better to trust God that he knows what he's doing and to allow him to glorify himself through our trials. Look what he says in in verse uh, 14. He says, And even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Now, What does he mean by that? Well, some have suggested, and I think it's true, that because he wasn't able to do all the things he wanted to do, he experienced piercing, torturous headaches, pain and weaknesses, lack of strength. Paul wasn't able to function at his full maximum efficiency but you know what Paul's saying here is you didn't blow me off you didn't refuse to listen to me but I think secondly what he's saying here is that because in the ancient world if somebody claimed to be a prophet of God and they had a chronic physical problem oftentimes people thought that that would discredit their claim as a man or woman of God. In other words, and I'm sure you've heard this nonsense, godly people don't get sick. Right? How foolish. Most religions in the first century considered disease and disabilities as a sign of divine displeasure and even demonic influence. And Paul says, you, you didn't treat me with contempt. You didn't regard me as Nothing. Nor did you treat me in a scornful way. By the way, look at that word scorn. It's a very, very interesting word in the original language. It's what's known as an onomatopoeia word. You say, what in the world does that mean? I practiced that word for the last two days and I got it right. An onomatopoeia word simply means that it means just like it sounds. And the Greek word here for scorn is the Greek word ektuo. Ektuo. You know what it means? Let me give you a hint. Ektuo. (laughs) It means to spit on. And Paul says, you didn't treat me that way. Back then when someone was disfigured or deformed, people would spit on them. And Paul says, you didn't treat me like that. You didn't buy into the thinking that you're sick because you're sinful and God must be punishing you. By the way, that's a heresy that continues to this day. How sad. How sad, especially for people who are going through difficult times. Paul says, you didn't yield to the temptation to judge the messenger and the message by outward appearance. You received me as, it, as if I were a, an angel of God and even Christ himself. Look at verse 15. He says, where then is your blessing of me now? You know, you welcomed me in the past. What happened? He says, I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given to them to me. He says, if I become now your enemy by telling you the truth... Why are you treating me so poorly? What caused your initial hospitality to me to turn to hostility? You were happy with me. You were rejoicing. You were full of joy. You had complete confidence in me. What gives now? In spite of my severe human inadequacies, you received me as if I were were Christ himself. And he says, where is that blessing that you once had? You know, as I was reflecting on this, I realized that being in ministry can be heartbreaking. I speak from experience. Some people that you invest your life into, and and they seem to have just an exhilarating response to the truth of Christ, sometime later, down the road, they lose that satisfaction and they turn on the one they once loved and they're no longer a friend. Remember what I said at the beginning of this message? Children can try your patience, but sometimes they can break your heart. And that happens in ministry. Let me just flat out say it, ministry is not easy. I wish it was. I had a dear, dear friend, I've mentioned him before, Stan Giles. He came out to Utah 40 years ago as a a summer missionary. Sadly, a few years ago, he contracted a brain tumor and he went home to be with the Lord. And he was a source of great, great encouragement to me, unbelievable encouragement. I get emotional just thinking about it. But I can remember in my conversations with Stan, he he told me something and I've never forgot it. He said, Doug, when somebody tells me they want to become a pastor, he says, I do everything in my power to talk them out of it. Because if they're not gifted and they're not called, they're not going to survive. And that's true. Paul says, do you remember how devoted you were to me? He said, you were willing to to pluck out your own eyes. Eyesight, I think, is one of the most precious of gifts. And those of you who are going through difficulties with your eyesight, I want you to know that you're in my prayers. These people were committed to the Apostle Paul to the point that they were willing to give up their eyesight on his behalf. Paul obviously had a, Uh, a problem with his sight and you see that evidenced in the end of this book where when he Paul gives his authenticating uh, note to this letter he says do you see with what big letters I'm writing this why was he writing with such big letters well because he had an eye problem And Paul says, the only thing I can conclude because of the way you've gone from one extreme to the other, once embracing me and now showing open hostility towards me, is that you don't want the truth anymore. And some people are like that, are they not? See, verse 16, he says, have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? These people lacked discernment. You embraced me because you loved the truth. And now, apparently, that's no longer the case. You know, it's a wonderful thing when people embrace you. Not for your appearance, but because you represent Jesus Christ. And you give them the truth. And Paul says, my disease made me repulsive. My message didn't come well packaged But you accepted me. You received me, as it were, an angel of God or even Christ himself. Because I gave you the truth. You know, I've never had anyone mistake me for an angel. That should be obvious. Or Jesus, for that matter. But I have been blessed to have led people to the Lord or helped them through difficult times. And they've showed me incredible gratitude to the point that it's almost embarrassing. And Paul was overwhelmed with how these people were treating him. By the way, let me give this point of application as well right here. The primary qualification for any Christian minister is that he preaches the truth. Ministers ought not be judged by their ability, their appearance, their personality, or their popularity. They ought to be judged by their faithfulness to the Word of God. Look at Paul's warning. It's in verse 17. And I wish I had time to just camp on this for a long time, but I'm going to leave the application of this to, to the Spirit of God, and I want you to just... Take this and and really meditate upon it because this is so very important. He says, those people, these false teachers that have infiltrated the church there, he says, they're so zealous to win you over, but for no good. Now, this is what false teachers always want to do. They want to alienate you from us so that you have a zeal for them. Wow. Wow. If that doesn't define false teachers or legalists or false teachers, I don't know what would. What's tragic is that false teachers and false religions prey on the weak, they prey on the vulnerable, they prey on people who are unwilling to think for themselves and they're they're aggressive They're, they're zealous Paul says to win you over their intentions are anything but honorable and notice that he says they want to to alienate you from others one of the characteristics of false teachers in a cult is they want to isolate you from others and they want to attract they want you to be attracted to them, not the truth. They want to shut you out. They want to exclude you from the benefits of salvation. And Paul says, don't get sucked into this. Paul is just incredibly grieved here. He told them the truth and the false teachers were telling them lies. He sought to glorify God. These false teachers were seeking to glorify self. They were exploiting these Christians. Can I tell you this? Beware of religious workers, preachers, or churches that demand exclusive allegiance, as if they have the corner on the truth. Mark it down. They will abuse you. They will use you. They will rob you of the joy of the Lord. They will malign and manipulate you. They want your money. Their devotion is not to Christ. Their devotion is to themselves. And Paul says, don't let it happen. There's nothing wrong with devotion and being zealous. But the problem is these people were going about it all the wrong way. Well, notice finally what he says in verses 19 and following he says my dear children for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone because I am perplexed he says I want to see Christ formed in you this is the picture of a mother about to give birth and Paul is saying I once already was involved In your new birth, when you came to faith in Christ, when you experienced salvation, and now, he says, I'm going through that all over again, not for salvation, but for the the pain of going through childbirth as you would experience deliverance from these false teachers. I want you to reach a level of Christ-likeness. And I love verse 20. He says, how I wish that I could just be with you now. You know, sometimes an email, a card, a letter just doesn't cut it. And that's what Paul is saying here. You know, these people were breaking the heart of the Apostle Paul. And he says, don't do that. I want you to remember how I treated you. But you know, as I was thinking about this, I realized that not only do we sometimes break the heart of people, sometimes I think we break the heart of God. We break the heart of God because we fail to remember the ground, the foundation of our salvation. Namely, we forget the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the tremendous sacrifice that he made on our behalf. And beloved, to ensure that that does not happen, because we have a tendency to remember what we ought to forget and to forget what we ought to remember. Jesus Christ established the Lord's table. And he said, I want you as, as my church, my, my family, I want you to remember me through these simple elements. I want you to remember me through the cup, which will symbolize my blood, and through the bread that will symbolize my body. I'm going to ask the men, if they would, who will be serving the elements to come forward, as well as the worship team. And we'll pray and ask God's blessing upon our time of remembrance. Father, we thank you that you have not left us here to flounder, to question how it is we should live. We thank you as well that you've given to us tangible reminders, tangible ordinances, whereby we are to remember Jesus christ and we pray that as we partake of these elements this morning the bread which will symbolize our lord's body and the cup which symbolizes his blood we pray that this would be a strengthening remembrance for all involved we ask it together as god's people in jesus name and everybody agreed and said amen